Well, turning your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're bringing to a close our study of Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. It's a great letter. There's so much in there. When you look at it, you think, well, it's just a couple of pages. And yet, when you look at it, there's so much there. It's filled in truth to help us as we stand for Christ. You remember that Paul writes to encourage the believers in trials, persecution, to correct the end times views that they had, and to instruct them concerning problem people, which we saw last time. We finished the letter this morning, and what we're going to do is briefly just put together a big overview. It won't take very long to do that. The Bible is so important. Sometimes when you think about Scripture, we go, well, you know, the Bible is fun and everything. But listen, just think about this. We're finishing this little, this little letter that we'd say, well, it's just, gosh, in my Bible, it's just like four, not even four pages. But think about this. The Bible is alive. It's alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and pierces as far as the vision of the soul and the spirit. The Bible is the truth. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. The Bible is profitable. It never comes back void, but accomplishes the purpose. The Bible is for our benefit. It's where we can know what it applied and pass it on to others. So that's the goal. The goal when we look at the Scripture is to, to understand it and make application and, and then pass it on to other people. In 1947, there was a young Bedouin boy. His name was Mohammed. And he was looking for one of his goats. And he thought it went up in one of the caves where he was. And so he threw a rock into the cave, hoping to scare one of his goats to come out from the cave. And he heard something break. Now, he was in a place called Qumran, which is near in, in Israel, a place called En Gedi, which is just north of the Dead Sea. And so he went up into that cave because he heard something break. And he thought, what could it be? And he found these big jars, about this big around, about this tall. And they were filled with scrolls. And so he pulled some of the scrolls out and took him to his dad. His dad came into Jerusalem, went to a place that they dealt with artifacts, and said, my son found these. What are these? They appeared to be Hebrew scriptures. Were they genuine or were they fake? Well, the experts came, and they checked them out, and they were indeed genuine. They were the entire Old Testament except for the book of Esther and they were manuscripts a thousand years older than any manuscripts that we ever had. These were called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now think about this. If, if they were fake, there's no excitement. But if they're genuine, there's joy and excitement. Well, we see the same thing in Paul's letter. You remember that they had received a message that they thought was from Paul because back in, in the letter, he says that you've heard maybe either a message or a spirit or a letter from me. Paul didn't write that letter. Now they've received a letter from him which is true. And Paul writes this letter. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul actually says, I'm writing this with my own hand. And so this was a genuine letter. One of the great truths for us is the entire Bible that we have, Old Testament and New Testament, is the Word of God. We have the Scripture, the Word of God, put together. Now think about it. When Paul wrote this, this wasn't all put together. The Old Testament was they had what they call the Tanakh, which is the, the Torah, the Nebim, and the Ketubim, which is the law and the writings of the prophets. And they had that put together by the time Jesus 
was on the earth. But these letters that we call the New Testament, they slowly came together, were passed around, were read. In fact, you understand that the letter to the second Thessalonians, or the second letter to the Thessalonians, eventually was passed around to all people and began to put together. And by the time we get to 95 to 100 A.D., what we call the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, were actually all put together. And people would say, this is the Scripture. And so we hold in our hands the Scripture the Bible, the written revelation from God. This morning, we're going to finish it up of this, of this small part of it, the Second Thessalonian letter. We're going to look at verses 16, 17, and 18. We bring a close this letter. We're going to do two things this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the closing, 16, 17, 18. And then a just, I mean, really a brief overview of the letter. Because every week, we, we kind of talk about it and put it together. All of you in this room, that if you've been coming for any length of time, you should know what this letter is about. You should say, well, here are the big three things that are found in this letter. So as we, as we start, we're going to see, uh, as we look at the, basically the, the last of the letter, we're going to see in verse 16, Paul's prayer for comfort, and then Paul's mark, his signature, verses 17 and 18. So let's look first, Paul's prayer for comfort. He prays that they'd be comforted and have peace. Notice verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. So Paul, as he ends this letter, he knows they're going through trials, tribulation. Remember, they're in persecution. Just remember this. When Paul went there on his second missionary journey, he went into the city. He was only there maybe a month, maybe a little more than a month. He led people to Christ. He got them together. He began to teach them. He taught them end-time events. He taught them everything. Persecution rose. They ran Paul out of town, and Paul had to go on to Berea. Then he went on to some other places and ended up in Corinth went to Athens and then on to Corinth, and that's where he wrote this letter from. But when they ran Paul out of town, they didn't stop the persecution. Those people that were believers, the first century church in Thessalonica, they came after them. And we we think we're persecuted. We, we look around and somebody gives us a bad look or somebody says, you Christians are, oh, are stupid, you know, and, and you go, oh, I'm so persecuted. When we don't understand what persecution is, there's places in the world that if you name the name of Jesus Christ, they will kill you. You know, one of our mission groups is those uh, 26 uh, uh, tribal pastors in India. Pastor Jacob, his sister Mary, they run the orphanage. And he oversees 26 tribal pastors that go all throughout southern India. And they go with freedom to go to southern India. And they're primarily dealing with Hindus. But if you went northern India, there's Muslims. And they will kill them. And so they have to restrict. They're restricted to stay in the southern part of India where they won't be killed. You understand that? We, we say, oh, I, I don't want to go on the campus. What, they going to kill you? No. And so these people were under great persecution. So look at Paul's prayer. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. So he, he prays that the Lord of peace would grant them peace. May God give them peace. Everybody wants peace. That's the way we are. May God give them peace. God, in fact, notice how he calls it the Lord of peace. God is called the Lord of peace. God, it's God's character. God is a God of love. God is a love of mercy. God is a love of grace. God is peace. That's who he is. In Isaiah 9, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And the truth is that all people want peace. Uh, everybody in our world is saying we just got to have peace. These believers were experiencing great trials. 
and he prays for peace. Now, by the way, I want you to understand something. Peace is not the absence of conflict, suffering, or trials. Peace is trusting God in the middle of the trial. That's what it is. I mean, when we say, I want peace, God goes, say, I'm going to give you peace. That doesn't mean you're not going to have conflict and trials and problems and persecution. You're just going to be able to trust me. He says, may God give you peace. I want, I want you to, we've talked about this before, but you need to really put this together. When you talk about peace in the Bible, there are two kinds of peace. There's peace with God and peace of God. That's how it fits together. Peace with God deals with eternal life salvation. Peace of God deals with our Christian life. So when the Bible talks about having peace with God, it deals with the fact that we trust in Christ and we have salvation. When the Bible talks about the peace of God, it's talking about our Christian life. So let's do this for just a second. Let's talk about the peace, of peace with God. The problem is that when we come into this world, we don't have peace with God because we're enemies of God. We're in rebellion. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one our own way. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one that seeks after God. We're doing our own thing. We're in rebellion. And, and there's no peace because we're actually enemies of God. We are. He's not our enemy. We're his enemy. We're running away from him. We don't like him. But God so loved us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to die on the cross to pay for sin and to rise again to conquer death. And that's, that's the gospel. I want you to understand the good news message is that Jesus died to pay for sin and he rose to conquer death. And the response to the gospel is to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. So God, who loved us, and we're in rebellion, who loved us, he sent his son. That's the story of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 is reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. We call that the story of the Bible. The perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. If anybody said to you, what's this big old book about? You just say it's how the perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to understand something. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have peace with God. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We were enemies, we were going astray, we trust in Jesus, now we have peace with God. We have an eternal relationship with him, we're a child of God, and we have peace with God. In this passage, Paul says the peace of God. He's talking about Christian life. They already had peace with God because they had trusted Christ. Now, because of the persecution, the, the, all of the things that are going on, he says, may the Lord of, God, Lord of peace get you peace. May you have the peace of God. And that deals with our Christian life. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. You want to have peace in your life? You're going to have to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us who know Christ as Savior will have the Holy Spirit inside of us. If we walk in the Spirit, we'll produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace. I want to show you a verse that, or several verses that mean a lot to me because it deals with how do we go through our Christian lives with peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and verse 9 of Philippians 4. Look at this. Be anxious for nothing. The word anxious in Greek means to be pulled apart because that's what you are. Anxious, you go, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Should I go over here? That's what anxious means. He says, be anxious for nothing, but by, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, quit being anxious. 
Just offer your prayer request to God and look what it says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, you can't even grasp it, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, listen, give it to the Lord, trust him, and his peace will come into your life. And then he goes on to say and says, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what happens when you live it out? And the peace and God, the God of peace will be with you and you'll have his peace. That's what it all sets down to. And so if we want to have the peace of God, we have to trust him. We have to trust him. We can have the peace of God as we maintain our fellowship with God and trust him. In all of the circumstances, notice what he says, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance, whatever is going on in all times, in all ways. You know how? Because look what the next part of the verse says. The Lord be with you all. Listen, when you go out these doors, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious for anything. God is with you all the time. Hebrews 13 says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. What should you fear? He's always with you. Matthew 18, he says, I'll be with us even to the end of the age, to the time he takes us to be with him. And so we can comfort one another. And as Paul prays, may the God of peace, the Lord of peace, give you peace in every circumstance because the Lord is with you. And so what a way to end the letter. He says, have God's peace. You already have peace with God. Now have the peace of God. And as he ends the letter, and then we're going to see his signature. This is, I think, so special. Uh, look at verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. I love that coming from Paul. Paul says, I write this with my own hand. You understand, they had a thing, I don't know if you know, the, the term amanuensis. Amanuensis is someone who writes for somebody else. That would be, let's say that I had an amanuensis and I'd say, hey, take this down. Uh, to all the people in Stillwater, I would, and this person is writing this down. Paul usually had an amanuensis. Paul had people who wrote his letters for him, and then at the end, he would sign his name as his distinguishing mark. That's what he did. Uh, Paul did not write Romans. When I say did not write Romans, he didn't handwrite it. A guy by the name of Tertus wrote the book of Romans. They read it at the end. Uh, Tertus says, I, Tertus, who wrote this, greet you. He's the one who wrote out the book of Romans. Paul had bad eyes, the best that he can tell. When he went to the Galatian region, he says, when he wrote the letter to them, he says, you loved me so much, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. I think when Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus, when he trusted in Christ, I think from that point on, he had trouble seeing. And he was not able to handwrite all of his letters. So he had an amanuensis to write the letters for him, and then at the end he would sign. So notice what he says here. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the last part of the letter. I'm writing this with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. I think he's saying, this shows you this is from me. You remember they thought they got a letter from Paul earlier? But it wasn't signed by Paul. Paul says, this is a letter from me. Back in 
verse 2 of, of uh, chapter 2, he says that you, you got disturbed because you got either a spirit or a message or a letter as if it's from us. Paul didn't write that letter, whatever they heard. He writes this letter because he signs it. Look at the Galatian letter. Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So I think that Paul was not able to see very well. And I mean, there's a time, if you, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a time that Paul was standing before some of the religious leaders and he said something about the high priest and they slapped him and they said, you can't talk about the high priest. And he went, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. I think Paul was saying, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell who he was. You know, I think Paul maybe couldn't see. I don't know. We just know that Paul was an amazing man. And when he got to the end of the letter, he says, I'm going to write it like I always do. I write, I write this in my own hand so you can tell it's me. And in Galatians, he wrote big so that people could say, this is Paul. They could rest that this is the word of God. This was Paul the apostle to this church. We have their letter. We have it exactly as it was written. We have the word of God. We can go to the Bible and we can rest in it. It is the truth. It is perfect. It is reliable. It is accurate. It is profitable. It is never void. We can know it. We can apply it. We can pass it on. It is our authority. It is the basis for our lives. You have it in your hand. You can take it with you anywhere. You've probably got 10 copies all around your house of this word right here. You have written revelation from the living God. And when Paul put that at the end, he's saying to them, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing this letter to you, and this is authoritative. Do what it says. That's what we're supposed to do. Trust it. And then he gives us farewell in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And, and you know, when you read something like that, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, most people just go, yeah, that's, that's how he ends it. But think about it. Grace. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is such a great word. I was talking um, just recently with somebody about grace, and we said, you know, grace is so funny because people say grace all the time, and they don't even mean grace. They'll say, grace of God. And it's for salvation. And then they add four or five things that you have to do to be saved instead of by faith alone in Christ alone. See, the grace of God is that he gives you eternal life by faith. But then people say, oh, yeah, grace. Oh, listen, there's several ministries that have the name grace in them, but they're works for salvation. And so when Paul says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, I want you to think about it. Grace is unmerited favor. What did you do to deserve eternal life. What did you do? You did absolutely nothing. We don't deserve it. We never have deserved it. We never will deserve it. We like sheep have gone astray. We're sinful. We come short of the glory of God. We step over the line. We're sinful and we sin on purpose. And yet God in his grace says, I love them. I'm going to provide my son for them and I'm going to give to them the gift grace of eternal life when they trust in me. What did we do to deserve it? Absolutely Nothing. And so when you think about the grace of God, think about the grace of God for salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. When you get a gift, you don't deserve it. A gift is given freely. If you deserve it, it's not a gift. You earned it. That's why salvation is not something you earn. Salvation is something you get freely. 
God in his grace has saved us. God in his grace gives us grace to live the Christian life. That's what this book is about. In fact, that's what most of the New Testament is about. Most of the New Testament is letters written to churches on how we live out our faith. It's the grace of God that he's given it to us so that we know how to live and we know how to serve. We know what we're supposed to do. And then last but not least, on the grace of God for his future, he's going to come get us. You know, I love John 14 where Jesus said something, let not your heart be troubled. He's talking to them. He's already told them he's leaving. And they're all upset because he's leaving. And they said, we don't want you to leave. And let me tell you, if we were there, we would say, don't leave. We don't want you to go. This has been the greatest three years of our lives. We don't want you to go. And he said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many what? Many rooms. If it wasn't that way, I told you, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. When I get it ready, I'll come back and get you. And where I am, you will be also. It's the grace of God. He's preparing you a place. When we studied the book of Daniel, we looked at the end times and we saw that there's going to be a city called the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It's, it's, it's in eternity and it's a place that has many, many rooms. That's the place he's preparing for us. One day we will live in the New Jerusalem because Jesus Christ in his grace has provided a place for us and will come back and get us. That's what he says grace of God for the future. So what have we seen? We've seen Paul prays for their peace, that they would endure the persecution. He writes this with his own hand, and he says, the grace of God be with you. Now let me ask you some questions. Do you have God's peace? It comes by faith in Jesus Christ and as you live out his daily power. It, I hope every one of you have, the, have peace with God that comes simply by faith in Jesus Christ, and you are justified by faith, you have peace with God. But I also hope that you have the peace of God, which is you're trusting him as you go through life. Do you realize that God's word is perfect and accurate? You have the written word of God. And last but not least, do you thank him for his grace, his grace for your salvation, his grace in our Christian lives, and for the future? There's so much there in this letter. Let me do this. I want to give you a very brief overview. It'll just take just a few, maybe a few minutes. When we saw the letter, I bet you that if I asked somebody to come up here and I said, come up here and stand right here, tell us the three things that were in this letter, the big three. Many of you would be able to do it. If you remember, he writes to encourage them in trial. He writes to correct their end-time views, and he gives instructions for problem people. Isn't that amazing? That's the three things, and there's three chapters, and that's the, what's in each chapter. Let's think about chapter one. This is the encouragement, the encouragement in the midst of trials. Look what it says. Look at, look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Look what he says. He says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your per perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. He was, he was saying, you're standing strong in persecution. And then he says, God's going to reward you because one of these days he's going to come from heaven and take care of you. That's chapter 1. And chapter 2, end times, he corrected the end times events, remember? He said, you're not in the tribulation. 
The rapture has to happen, and then the man of sin come. And do you remember this? We've seen this many, many times because we saw it all in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. This was the church. They thought, they had been told that the rapture already happened, and they had been left behind. And Paul says, no, you have not been left behind. The rapture has not happened. It's going to happen, and then there's going to be a man of sin come. And when the man of sin comes, first of all, the rapture is going to happen. Man of sin is going to come. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and then Jesus is going to come the second time. That's what we've been seeing, and that was chapter 2. And then finally, in chapter 3, deal with problem believers. He told them, you better work hard and not be a busybody. <laughs> and that word meant, to, he called them unruly believers. And he actually said that if they're unruly believers, break fellowship with them, shame them, so they will come back. What a great letter. Helps us grow. Trust God in the trials of life. Understand how the end times fit together and deal with the issues in the local church.